0: As we go through the book of Isaiah And with that uh, side note, let's open our books to I, our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 12 Isaiah chapter 12 And as I said, it's uh, it's a kind of a special message But uh, all of God's word is a special message, but particularly because This is a song a song of praise. That's the title tonight a song of praise The subject of this chapter is the worship of the Lord Jesus in the millennium or in the kingdom age. We've been following a string of prophecies that started in chapter 7 and now finishes here in chapter 12. The prophecy started with God's judgment on his people. And in chapter 11, last week, we saw that the kingdom would be set up on earth and that the Lord Jesus would be reigning personally. Here in chapter 12, we come to the best part, because the tribulation is past, and all the problems of life are over, and now Israel has entered into the kingdom, and we find them worshiping and singing praises to God. It's a short chapter, and and it's really a psalm. And here we have the people praising Jesus under the direct and personal reign of Jesus. It's pure praise. When I say pure praise, think of it when we're in heaven or with him in the kingdom, we're like him. It will be pure. It's not like in a sense today, you know, where we still struggle with sin. We struggle with temptation and we do worship God. But sometimes it's maybe contaminated with the flesh and you know it's mixed with the flesh but you know and it, it, with, when it comes to the king and age it's going to be pure praise to God from saved hearts because of his salvation and creation it's not like a, a lot of what some people call praise today that we see in the church unfortunately some praises is, is, is more like a ritual to some you know it's become routine because we do it Every time we gather, you know, sometimes it's forced praise or, or half-hearted praise. The curse here has now been removed from the earth. And that's a good reason here for praising God and for showing his goodness in creation. Remember that God had cursed the earth because of Adam's sin in Genesis three seventeen. The whole earth at that moment that God had made just for man, just for Adam, You know, and and everything that was in it that Adam had possession of and dominion of and everything that God had made for him and given for him that he might enjoy it. The use of everything in it with comfort and pleasure, that which was man's greatest earthly blessing was turned into a curse because of sin, which is a proof of the exceeding sinfulness of what he did. And deserved it. So so in later instances, a once fruitful land is turned into barrenness for the wickedness who dwell in it. Psalm 107, 34. A once fruitful land turned into barrenness for the wickedness of those who dwell in it. And boy, can we see that today. So whenever there's barrenness in a country, remember this. Whenever there's barrenness in a country, A lack of food, a famine, a drought, it should always be attributed to sin. Because remember, when he made the Garden of Eden, everything that would bring man a blessing and joy was there. There was nothing there that would mar his character. You know, there, there was nothing there that would do that. But when he sinned, it ruined all of that. Because the garden was a beautiful place. It had everything. There was nothing lacking there for man. So again, whenever we see barrenness in a country, a lack of food, a famine, a drought, it should always be attributed to sin. And this should remind us of the sin of the first man, Adam, and the consequence that in toil, remember he told Adam, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Meaning, That with much toil and trouble and sorrow. And in much painstaking work on the earth. Man would make his living out of what he produced. But it would be done with a lot of difficulty. And this would be his life as long as he was on the earth. We haven't seen anything like this in nature. Since then. Because of the curse on the earth. Today, nature is cursed. Pollution everywhere, and, and not just, you know, in the skies and what we see, you know, and the, the brown cloud up against the mountains or the, the, the smog and all that. Pollution everywhere, you know, physically, materially, spiritually, in every way, shape, and form. But during the kingdom age, the millennium, that will totally change. So you see, this chapter is a chapter of praise. It's a song of praise. It's another exciting description of the people's joy when Jesus Christ comes to rule over the earth. But you know what? Even now, we should express our thankfulness to God, thanking Him, praising Him, and telling others about Him. And from the bottom of our hearts, we have to praise Him and share the good news with others. So let's begin now with chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. And it says, in that day, again, the millennium came. In that day, you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. So, you know, Isaiah, said, in that day, you guys are going to sing. You're going to sing, I will praise you, O Lord. You were angry with me, but not anymore. Now you comfort me. Once again, we have the words, in that day, which marks the beginning of the great tribulation period and goes through the coming of the kingdom that Jesus is going to set up on the earth. This verse expresses, verse 1 expresses the thought that, that the darkness of sin is over and the day of salvation has come. Israel has gone through the terrible darkness of the tribulation and now the light has come. The tribulation is over. They enter into the peace and the joy of Christ's kingdom. They enter into his rest as Hebrews teaches us. This is a reason to praise God, to give him glory. The thing that will characterize the kingdom age is pure joy. It'll be real joy, pure joy. First of all, God gives you your own personal experience of what it means to be saved. There there is no secondhand salvation. We don't experience it through others. Salvation results in praise. Just like the time the Israelites sang the praises of God because of God's great deliverance from Egypt. That's in Exodus 15. The people will also, in the future, once again praise God as one man or one voice altogether for his wonderful salvation. Isaiah is speaking here as though his own generation was going to experience this redemption, this salvation. He's actually describing the people of the future, but in terms of his generation. So the people are seen to be united in praising God. They're doing it as if one voice, all together. It's the same with Paul when he tells the Christians in Romans 15, 6, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To praise God is to recognize him as worthy and to bless him for what he is and what he's done. Here, it's one voice that acknowledges the worth and the greatness of the saving God. This thanks is given to God, not because he was angry, as it says in verse 1, but because he had been angry, and yet God turned his wrath aside from the needy sinner And instead, he showed him comfort. How beautiful that is. But we can't misunderstand what this is saying here. The Bible never teaches that God's wrath is removed. God's wrath is just turned to love. The wrath of God wasn't removed and turned into comfort. Because if that was the case, it would give us a low view of the integrity of God. God is wrathful against sin, and that wrath has to be brought upon sin. Because Ezekiel 18.20, as it says, the soul that sins shall die. The wrath of God will fall on the one who's guilty of sin, and he will be punished. But if God's wrath is removed from a man, guess what? It falls on the punishment of sin Not in that particular man who has sinned, but on the one who in his place takes and suffers the guilt of all man's sin. Then and only then can God justly show his comfort to the man on whom his wrath has been poured out on. And even though God had truly been angry, and rightly so, it says his anger has been turned away and now he's a comfort to me. Man, this is an important point of salvation. God's anger has been turned aside from me and it's been placed on Jesus. I am the one who deserved God's anger to be poured out on me. But instead, I have received his comfort because of Jesus Christ. Our biggest problem isn't whether we will love God, but whether God will love us after all that we've done to him. There's no reason why he he shouldn't hate us all forever. If everyone was asked, what is the greatest wonder in all of your salvation, what would your answer be? Isaiah's would be, God was your enemy before, but now he comforts you. Have you made the change from being frustrated with an unwilling God, that is, who isn't going along with your program, to being comforted by a God who is just pouring out upon you abundantly grace upon grace. How do we get there? How do we get to that place? By going back to the gospel that made us Christians in the first place. Listen to it again. The wrath of God at our real uh, 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 the, the wrath of God on our real guilt is deserved. Matter of fact, it's even required in order for God to be true to himself. Because he says he punishes sin. His wrath is upon it. His condemnation does fall and with all of its power, but not on us. It falls on our substitute, Jesus Christ. And in his great love for guilty sinners, Jesus changed places with us at the cross. And, and, and I look at the cross, and, and, I, and I was picturing in your mind, all of mankind, every single living human being lined up in front of the cross because that's what should have taken place. Each human being should have been crucified. But as that first man began to step up, and this is as I'm picturing the first man began to step, guess what Jesus said? Just step back, I got this. And he said, I'm going to do this for all of you. His sacrifice is the reason why God's grace is abundantly poured out upon us. Jesus changed places with us at the cross. The result of our new relationship with God is because of that. For us to go boldly now into his presence for comfort and to receive mercy and to find grace whenever we need it. It brings God's own purpose to fulfillment. He wants every one of us to be able to say to him, like it says, notice there at the the end of verse 1, you comfort me. He wants every one of us to be able to say to him, Lord, God, you comfort me. Verse 2. behold god is my salvation i will trust and not be afraid for yah the lord is my strength and song he also has become my salvation the verse gives us a wonderful gospel message here in the old testament notice the word behold there in verse two the word behold says hey sit up and pay attention i have something to tell you this is important this speaks of how salvation should be the top priority in your life and my life. Nothing is more important than our salvation. It is our it is man's greatest need. Whatever else is important to you and me must become of lesser importance than our salvation. Notice it says next, behold behold God is my salvation. So behold says, sit up pay attention, I have something important to say. God is my salvation now it tells us the source of that salvation. God is my salvation. This tells us that Jesus Christ is our Savior and that he is God and he is the provider, the source of our salvation. And the identity of Jesus Christ comes in the names there. Notice, for Yah the Lord. For Yah the Lord. Look at the title here given to God. Yah is a contraction of Jehovah. It signifies both his eternity and his immutability, that is his unchangeableness. Jesus is Jehovah. Notice that the people won't say that God provided salvation, but he is my salvation. He is salvation because salvation is a person. It's not a program. It's not a system. It's not a ritual or some special observances, things that I have to do. Things that I have to complete in my life. Salvation is a person and that person is the Lord Jehovah, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're praising him for his salvation. It says, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust. This tells us how salvation is obtained, how we get salvation. Salvation is always obtained by faith and not works. And Isaiah spent his whole life trying to persuade people to trust God and not to give themselves to false saviors. His book, Isaiah's book, makes the question unavoidable for us today. Will we trust God? Will we trust Him in our, cal- in our calamities, in our trials and tribulations? Will we trust in Him to those tough times? Or will we fearfully... Because we're in doubt, surround ourselves in, 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 our, in our trust in God. Will we surround that trust in God with a backup plan? Okay, Lord, I'm coming to you, but if that doesn't work or, you know, I, I feel it's not done in a timely manner, I have to have a backup plan. Will it be surrounded by self-help just in case God fails me or I think he fails me because he never fails? Do we, but, or do we feel secure with God and God alone? One of the obvious things here about Isaiah's testimony, his voice is one out of the future. It's his simplicity. We're the ones who complicate complicate our trust in in God because we mix it with other things. We trust in our faith in God. We put faith in our faith, not faith in God. We trust in our faith in God. We trust in our theology of God. We trust in our, our worship of God. We hold on to God And whatever else makes us comfortable and secure. And the more crutches that we need, the more insecure we become. But when the grace of God overrules our foolishness, real faith comes alive and our look is simplified so that we say, as Isaiah says here, Behold, God is my salvation. That means He's enough for me. He's all that I need, period then we recognize that we've been safe all along. Now, as a result of these three things in in verse 2, as a result of our salvation, it produces three things. Notice what it says. I will trust and not be afraid. Salvation gives us peace. Not be afraid. Salvation takes away the fear of death and judgment. Why? Because I know what's going to happen when I die and I know where I'm going to go where I die. Nothing gives us peace like salvation. The second thing is, it says, I will trust in God and not be afraid for for Yah, the Lord, is what? My strength. Salvation gives us strength. Salvation gives us the strength that we need to live the Christian life. We can't live the Christian life in our own strength. The next thing that salvation gives, notice, for Yah, the Lord is my strength and song. Salvation gives us a song. Salvation really puts a song in our hearts. Salvation gives us something to sing about. Where sin at one time filled our lives with confusion and conflict and strife, salvation now fills our lives with order and harmony. When we experience how strong God really is on our behalf, you know, it, we, we realize it's better than we thought, you know, He then becomes our song. Our hearts will sing. They will sing when we accept the fact that it doesn't matter that we're not in control of our life and how much it does matter that God is in control for us. And when we recognize how little it matters that, that we're able... And it's enough knowing that God is able on our behalf. And in the kingdom, we're going to glorify and enjoy God with uninhibited song. Uninhibited song. Because he's able enough on our behalf. The day we step into that messianic kingdom and we find that God has been true to his word, we are going to bust out in music like never before. The gospel says that we'll sing a new song. Revelation 14, 2 and 3 says it will sound like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne. Hey, okay? No one has ever heard this sound ever. This sound that's being described here, that's going to happen one day in that kingdom, that sound has never been heard in the world. But one day, we are going to be a part of that. The music and this song is going to pour out of our hearts and pour out of our mouths for all eternity. Isaiah here is repeating the song of Moses that that they sung after God rescued uh, rescued Israel at the Red Sea in Exodus 15, verses 2 through 18. 18. They were weak, but it didn't matter. Why? Because here's the confidence of the biblical gospel from Genesis to Revelation. Romans 8, 31, Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, his power is made perfect in our weakness. Hey, God is attracted to weakness. He's drawn to weakness. And if you want to be strong, you have to go through a weakening process. And when that assurance takes hold of our hearts, we, said, we see that even the scary experiences of life are leading us to a, 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 a leading us deeper into salvation, into a deeper relationship with God. We can stop acting like scaredy cats and and thinking like victims and start singing even now as conquerors. Paul said we're more than conquerors. Verse 3, therefore with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now in the hot burning dry wilderness of the Sinai, the desert out there, the people had murmured and complained because they didn't have any water. And in response to their murmuring, remember, Moses struck the wa- rock and water poured out. This was a picture of God's grace in the desert. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, And all of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the same spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Hey, if, if, if the Sinai was a desert, and it was, If Sinai was a desert, how much more desolate is the desert of life? How many times is our life dry and it's barren, it's lifeless and it's fruitless? Yet even in this barren wilderness of life, there are life-giving wells of water. And from these wells, the saved, the redeemed will draw water, which gives them strength and, and, and sustains their life. And water, man, it is a perfect symbol for salvation and the blessings that come with salvation. How refreshing and how reviving water is to somebody who's been wandering around in a thirsty and dry land. Listen to Isaiah forty-one seventeen and 18. The poor and needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Jesus said in John 4, 14, But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Revelation 7, 17, From the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters psalm 23 1 2 the lord is my shepherd i shall not want he makes me to lie down in green pastures he leads me beside the still waters just like the water in the wilderness was given by the goodness and the grace of god so is the water in the waters of salvation that isaiah is talking about it's a gift of his goodness salvation is totally of grace David said in Psalm 63, 1, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsting land where there is no water. We have a tendency to look to this world as the satisfaction for our thirst and how many people wandering through this world, barren, uh, lifeless, just existing, they're looking to find their satisfaction in this earth. That thirst that they have, they're looking to satisfy it with the things of the earth. And sometimes to them, God feels like a dry and weary land. But what God does, he opens up to us, he opens up to us wells of life-giving fullness like water through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Wells of love, wells of joy, wells of healing, wells full of mercy and grace and all kinds of acts of kindness. Psalm 107, 35, again, the psalmist says, he turns a wilderness into pools of water and dry land into water springs. Psalm 84, 6 and 7, as they pass through the valley of Baca, Baca is weeping. As they pass through the valley of weeping, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. I mean, how many times we see the waters mentioned in Scripture. Because it's reviving and it's refreshing. And that's what God and through the Holy Spirit does with us. Verse 4. He says, And in that day you will say, Praise the Lord. Call upon his name. Declare his deeds among the peoples. Make mention that his name is exalted. Isaiah says, In that wonderful day, in the millennium, you're going to sing. And you're going to sing, Thank you, Lord. You're going to praise his name. He says, tell all the people what he's done. Let them know how mighty he is. Telling others what God has done, that's a natural response when you've drawn from the wonderful wells of salvation. When men enjoy the blessings of salvation, I mean, really, you have to tell others about the wonderful saving and forgiving of God. You have to. Not that that God makes you, but it's it's a byproduct. It's a result that that comes from experiencing that deep, true salvation of God. You can't help but tell others. It's a natural response. It's a natural byproduct from experiencing those wells of salvation, those deep waters of salvation. When men and women enjoy the blessings of salvation, they have to tell others about the wonderful saving and forgiving of God. When your heart overflows with the abundance and the generosity of God's saving love and his mercy and his grace and his blessings, man, the mouth has to talk about him and praise him. And Isaiah, man, he looks forward to spreading one message all over the world. That is telling others about the truth of God, the truth about God, making people aware of his infinite greatness and majesty. The psalmist, uh, the, the Asaph, and, I'm sorry, the psalmist said in Psalm sixty six sixteen. 16, he said, come and hear all you who fear God, and I will declare what he's done for my soul. And something the Lord pointed out to me, when I've, and I've read this a lot of times, but I love how God says, hey, check this out. What he's done for my soul, not for, my, not for easy living, not for my material goods. Look what he's done for my life now that he's made it. No, look what he's done for my soul that was darkened with sin, that was bound for hell because of sin. Look what he's done for my soul. Asaph in Psalm 77, 11 through 14 said, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all of your work and talk of all your deeds. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. And we should all be doing the same thing. Let me declare what he's done for my soul. Let me, let me tell you about the wonderful works that he's done for me in the past. And now, and, and, he, and I know he's going to do more in the future. I know that for sure, because when I die, I'm going to be in heaven with him. Verse 5. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Here we are now in the future kingdom, beaming with joy in God alone. God is the one who does such great things. And when the six days of creation, remember, God looked at his work and he said, it was very good. Not just, "Eh, it's all right. Eh, It was good. No, it was very good. The Bible says that he does all things well. And when God says it's good, it is good. Taste and see that he is good. So it would be a good thing for us to thank him for a perfect salvation, to thank him for creation, even though sin has polluted it. And even though we have ants and mosquitoes and gnats and flies, we have beautiful singing birds, beautiful trees and beautiful flowers and many other beautiful things. Even though the earth has been cursed with sin, it is still beautiful. I mean, you know, you can go to places that, that, that are look like they're untouched by man. And I think, man, what was this place like before man sinned? Even though the earth, like it said, has been cursed with sin, it's still beautiful. But just think how beautiful it's going to be when the curse is removed. We will have a good reason and occasion to sing praises to God in that day. As well as today. John Trapp, a Puritan scholar, said this. I love this. He says, No duty is more pressed in both the Old and New Testament than this of rejoicing in the Lord. Listen to what he said. He said, It is no less a sin not to rejoice than not to repent. It's, you know, he's saying it's just as big a sin if we don't rejoice in the Lord as it is in not repenting for our sin. Because of, I mean, his goodness. Jesus is in his his prayer. In John 17, 13, asked the Father for us that they would be filled with my joy. That Christ's joy would be fulfilled in themselves. Paul defined the basic nature of Christianity in Romans 14, 17 as righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In closing now, verse 6. Cry out and shout, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. Here Isaiah is looking forward to that future day when people are restored and they will be so hilariously, I mean hilariously celebrating and enjoying their only resource. The Holy One. The Holy One of Israel. This is going to be one great heart pounding and energetic outburst of a saved heart who's giving to God all of that, all all that a poor, measly creature can give him. His praise. Our praise. You know, a lot people talk a lot about their dedication to God. But do we even really know what dedication means? In that day, in that glorious day, Israel will know. Israel will know its meaning, and you know what? We're going to know it too. And notice that God isn't satisfied just as I opened up in prayer. I thought about this, being here in, in the sanctuary with God that he's, he, he wasn't satisfied and he's not satisfied just, you know, standing on the sidelines and watching us do what we do. He doesn't just stand on the side and, and, and watch everything from the sideline. From the very beginning, God wanted to be among his people. Exodus 25, verse 8. Notice what he says. He says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Isn't that amazing? God wants to be with us. He wants to dwell among us. God lived among us in Jesus Christ. John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. He comes to us through the Holy Spirit. Verse 21 of John, John 1 verse 20 says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. Notice, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 1 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. And we, notice, my father and me, we will come to him and make our abode or our home with him. And in the messianic kingdom, his presence is going to be great among us, uniting the whole world in a holy joy. Zechariah 2, verses 10 and 11 says this, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and they shall become my people and I will dwell in your midst and then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Father, thank you so much for this, Lord, this beautiful, this beautiful chapter, Lord. Father, these these six verses, God, filled with so much promise and so much joy and and anticipation, God, excitement and singing and music and, and wonderful times celebrating our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for what he did upon the cross, Lord. Father, for he saved my soul. Look what he has done for my soul. And what he's done for my soul has changed my life, my outlook, my vocabulary, my actions. I am not what I should be, but I thank you, Lord, that I'm not what I was. And looking forward to what I will be, God, all because of you. God, may you just bless my brothers and sisters, Lord. Watch over them. Protect them, God. Have your way with us, God. And let us declare to the world all that he has done for us. That we, would, that, that, that we wouldn't hold back, God. That our witness, our testimony wouldn't be inhibited, Lord. Our praise wouldn't be inhibited, Lord. That we would sing to you, uninhibited, Lord. Because of all that you've done for us. So, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We give you honor and glory. And it's in Jesus' name, and because of his sake, we pray. Amen. Awesome.